Okay, let me just quickly mute. You go. Okay, sorry about that. So this week's Torah portion is a double header because we put together certain Torah portions in order to be able to finish before Shavuot. And also we always want to be in the fifth book before Tishabov. The Dvarim, Parshas Dvarim, the first portion in the book of Deuteronomy is always before the fast of Tisha B'Av. And Tisha B'Av is going to be next Saturday night, Sunday. And may it be a day of festivity as we are taught when Mashiach comes, Tisha B'Av will be a day of festivity rather than a day of fasting. But as of right now, it's a horrific day of, of mourning. Um, so we're going to do two Torah portions, Matos and Masse, number one. Number two, this two Torah portions concludes the fourth book of the five books of Moses. Every time, every Shabbat that you finish one of the five books of Moses is called Shabbat Chazak. And after we finish the entire Torah portion, we say Chazak, Chazak, Venis Chazak. May we go from strength to strength and be strengthened. And another thing, this Shabbat is Shabbat Rosh Chodesh. It is the, the first day of the month of Av. Now, interesting enough, the Torah itself does not tell us on what day Moses passed away. It just tells us that Moses says, today I am 120 years. From here we learn out that Moses passed away on his birthday. And it's our sages that do the figuring. There's actually two uh, different opinions, but we follow the opinion that he was born and passed away on the seventh of Adar. But it doesn't say in the Torah that he was born or that he passed away on the seventh of Adar. However, concerning Aaron's day of passing, it clearly says on the first day of the fifth month, which is this Rosh Chodesh. So Shabbat, which is Rosh Chodesh Av, is the yard site of Aharon, the yard site of Aaron, the brother of Moses, which is the, which is the um, high priest. Now, um, before I get into the Torah portion and the topic that I wanted to share with you that I prepared, um, I wanted to share with you that I find it very purposeful. Everything Hashem does is purposeful. Now, why would Aaron's yard site be on Rosh Chodesh of, number one. Number two, why would God make sure to tell us, doesn't tell us what the day of Moses' yard site, not Abraham, not Yitzchak, not Yaakov, but does tell us the exact date of the yard site of Aaron. So not only does Hashem align it perfectly that Aaron's yard site should be on Rosh Chodesh of, but even more so, Hashem makes sure that we know that Aaron's yard site was on Rosh Chodesh of. Now, what I'm going to share with you now is my own thoughts. And I always point out when it's my own thoughts, because I don't want, you know, most of the times, 99.9% .9 of the times, whenever I don't say that these are my own thoughts, I'm sharing with you the words of the Rebbe. So I don't want to mix what's my words with the words with the Rebbe. You should know these are my own thoughts and you're free to argue on it. Aaron... The Mishnah tells us about him in Pirkei Avot, three things. Ohev Shalom, he loved peace. Not only did he love peace, 
but Rodev Shalom, he pursued peace. He actually would go over to a married couple that he knew that they were having a little bit, you know, disagreements. He would go over to the husband and say, you know, that your wife, she wants to talk to you. And she asked me, she doesn't know how to approach you. Then she would tell the wife, you know, your husband wants to approach you. And most of the times, the reason husbands and wives or good friends or parents and children um, or co-workers remain in the realm of a fight is only because of the ego. Who's going to go over to who first? So Aaron knew that he got that ego out of the way, making each one think that the other one wants to start first peace, and then they would make peace. So not only was he a lover of peace, he was a pursuer of peace. And then it says another thing that he loved all creations. And I heard from the Rebbe of blessed and saintly memory that what we learn out from here is even if a person has no saving grace, other than he is the creation of God. That was enough for Aaron to, to love him or her or it. Now, I want to share with you, what does the Rebbe mean when the Rebbe says, if the only saving grace he has is that he is a creation of God? So for this, I want to just quickly share with you a piece of Talmud. The Talmud says how a certain sage saw a person walking and he said, wow, he is so ugly physically. He was, I don't know, deformed or ugly. And the person turned around and said to the sage, if you have complaints in the way I look, talk to the craftsman who made me. And obviously he was talking about God. And it's very interesting Immediately, the sage realized that he did wrong. He was disrespectful to this person. And he got out of the carriage and followed him, begging him to forgive him. When he didn't know who the sage was, this person, and when he got into the city and he saw everyone coming out to greet this rabbi, he said, who are you coming to, to greet that rabbi? And he, like, really? He mocked him. How can you greet a person who can tell a person that he looks ugly, doesn't even know me from anywhere? And they all, the people, begged the person to forgive the rabbi, and he finally forgave the rabbi. I'm focusing on the story to share with you what does it mean that the saving grace is that God created me. God created this person. So if that's my only saving grace, that I am the work of the ultimate craftsman, that was enough for Aaron to love. Okay, so now we know that Aaron is all about peace, pursuing peace, loving peace, and loving all of God's creatures. Now, the question I asked was, A, why does God have him pass away on the Rosh Chodesh of? And B, why does God emphasize to us and make sure that we know that he passed away on Rosh Chodesh of? Something God didn't make sure that we know not about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, or anyone else in the Torah. It doesn't say what day he passed away on. And what I would like to suggest is that obviously God sees the future, and the Torah is not meant just to be there for us in the time when it was taking place with Moses in the desert, but as the blueprints to my individual life in 2021 in North Miami, Florida. Hence, I believe that God in the five books of Moses was already preparing us to be able to endure the exile and most importantly, to bring Mashiach. Why so? 
Our sages tell us that the only reason why the holy temple was destroyed was because of baseless hatred. Now, I will assure you that I have never met a person who was able to see that their hatred was baseless. I myself, if I'm upset at someone, try to convince me that I have nothing to be upset over. And I'm like, what are you kidding me? Do you know what he did to me? Do you know what she said about me? Do you know what that, blah, 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 blah. Of course, it's no baseless. I'm wrong for hating, but don't say it's baseless. Our sages say there is such thing as baseless hatred. And if we stop and we're really willing to ask ourselves, really, of course, we think we were slighted. But is there really a base for hatred? Maimonides tells us clear how to behave when we're upset at someone. Maimonides says that the silent treatment is not Jewish. Those are the words he says. It's not Jewish to have silent treatment. Rather, go to the person, tell the person why you feel wronged. So there's such a thing as baseless hatred. And I'm going to, just for our conversation, interpret baseless hatred means that even if I have a reason for being upset at you, that I'll never have a reason for not coming to you and talk to you about it. Silent treatment is baseless right there and then. So therefore, the holy temple was destroyed for baseless, baseless hatred. Who does Aaron stand for? Pursuing love. Hence, Rosh Chodesh, which is the birth of the entire month. It is the power of the entire month. It is the rebirth of the moon and the rectification of the entire month. So already nine days before the fast day of the destruction of the temple, God is already planting within us the answer, the cure before the sickness. Aaron's yard site, Aaron's life legacy is the cure and the healing and the overcoming what the most difficult day of this month is all about. The destruction of the temple based on baseless hatred and Rosh Chodesh is all about loving peace, pursuing peace and loving everyone just because they're the creation of God. Okay, I'm gonna get off my soapbox about Rosh Chodesh and let's go on to the Torah portion. So the Torah portion, as I told you, it's a double header. You have... In portion number one, we talk about taking a vow. And just that you know, this simple definition of taking a vow, just a simple Talmudic interpretation to what a, a, a nether is, is that something that is permissible and I take upon myself a vow that I will not allow myself to eat this, to, to whatever it may be, to do this, whatever it may be. So the definition of a vow is that I separate myself from something which God said is permissible, but because I want to strengthen my, my yetotov, I want to subdue my evil inclination, so I take upon myself abstinence or whatever it may be, whatever it may be. Abstinence can be from food, abstinence can be from that those that, may, that they take upon themselves not to talk for X amount of hours, a fast of speech, whatever it may be. That is the definition of a vow. Now, the law is that you have to keep your vow. And what happens if you make a vow and you see that you can't live up to it? You have to undo the vow. Now, the undoing the vow, kol nidre, for example, before Yom Kippur is undoing a vow. 
Now, there's two ways to undo the vow. One is to go to a chacham, someone who is halachically called a scholar. Another way is to go to three simple people. You'll know that, for example, on Erev Rosh Hashanah, we sit with 10 people. You go to three people and you tell them, this and this is the vow I took. And when I took this vow, I did not think that it would entail this and this and that. And I can't do it. I'm asking for it to be annulled. So there's different levels of how to do it. One is matir neder. One unties the vow. And one is mefir neder. And, the, and basically, there's the annulments of the vow. Now, if you, re, if you read the email that I sent out this week, it's built on a, a beautiful teaching of the first Lubavitcher Rebbe on this week's Parsha. And when it says that if a woman takes a vow, now because the woman is the akeret habayit, the foundation of the home, so her vows don't affect her, but affects the tone of the entire house. And therefore the sages say that within the day, within the day, before sunset, before nightfall of the day that she makes that vow, if she's single, the father can undo the vow. If she's married, the husband can undo the vow. If she's betrothed, then she needs both the father and the husband and the betrothed to, to undo the vow. Now, if you want to hear and learn a beautiful mystical insight where the husband is God, the wife is us, the father is God, the daughter is us, and what does it mean that we take upon ourselves a vow and God knows the vow, um, you got an email today with my Tvar um, Torah built on a beautiful teaching of the Okay, so that is the first part of this Torah portion, all the laws of a vow. And ultimately speaking, the reason why the Chacham is the one that has the power of the vow to, un to undo the vow is because in Kabbalah, Chachma comes from two words, Koach, Ma. Ma means what? And it comes from what Moses told the people, why are you complaining to us? Moses says, Aaron and I are but what? We're just regular people. We're just being servants of God. So this concept of ma is the concept of humility, the way out of a vow. A vow is done in anger and a vow is done in, in self-reliance. A vow is done by ego-driven, while the annulment of a vow is through humility. And so read the, again the email and you'll see the beautiful insights to it. Okay, now what happens is that God tells the Jewish people, he tells Moses that the Jewish people should take revenge for what the Midianites did to them. The Midianites lured them into immorality and idolatry. Now I want to point out to you how beautiful the relationship between God and us is. In verse 2, chapter 31, verse 2. God tells Moses, the Jews have to take revenge for what was done to them. Nikom, nikmat b'nei Yisrael. Take revenge for the children of Israel. When Moses talks to the people, he says, we must gather together a army. And what does he say? To do nikmat Hashem. To take revenge for what they did to God. So look at what a loving relationship is. God is concerned about the honor of the Jewish people, the honor of them being brought into idolatry and adultery. And the Jews are worried about the disgrace being put upon God's name. And that's, I want to share with you an interesting story that we heard from the Rebbe's doctor, Dr. Weiss. 
So the Rebetzin and the Rebbe had a very interesting communication with each other. If the Rebbe knew that the Rebetzin wasn't feeling well, the Rebbe would ask the Rebetzin, go see a doctor. And the Rebetzin would tell the Rebbe, I'll only allow a doctor to come and check me up if you allow at the time for him also to give you a checkup. And the Rebbe in return would do the same thing. If the Rebetzin was concerned about how the Rebbe was feeling and would say, you know, why don't you allow the doctor to check you? The Rebbe would use that opportunity to make a deal. If you allow the doctor to check you as well, then I'll allow the doctor to check me. That's the type of love we're talking about. God's worrying about the honor of the Jews and the Jews are worrying about the honor of God. And what happens is they go ahead and they take a thousand soldiers from each tribe, including the tribe of Levi. And these 13,000 soldiers are going to war against the Midianites for what they did. And when they go in the war against the Midianites, they also at that time take revenge to the person who gave this bad idea, which was the prophet Bilam. So here we see that a person, what do you use your gifts for? The Jewish prophets would consistently use their gifts to be able to strengthen morality, strengthen the holy divine boundaries, strengthen love, strengthen relationships. Let's look through the books of all the prophets. And here you have a prophet Bilam, who what does he do when he sees that he can't curse the Jews? He says, you know what? I know as a prophet, I have a relationship with God, but it's more important to me to bring down the Jews. So instead of keeping my relationship with God, which I know abhors immorality and idolatry, I'm going to use God's hatred to immorality and adultery to bring to an idolatry to punish the Jews. And that's what happens. And, and unfortunately it worked. It was about 80 something thousand that were killed and another 24,000 that were killed in a plague. But that's what Bilam did. So they took revenge. The soldiers come back with all the spoils of war. And Moses sees amongst the spoils of war were the women. And Moses gets angry and says to the soldiers, you brought back the women that were the very weapons used to bring you down. These were the very women. And therefore Moses said that all the virgin girls can stay alive, but all the other women have to be put to death because they were the very weapons that came with their idols and behaved immoral just to be served as weapons, to be used as weapons to bring down the Jews. And then what happens is God tells Moses how to divide the spoils, the remaining spoils of war between the nation and the soldiers, how much from the nation's spoils goes to the holy temple, the priests, the Kohanim, how much from the people in the war, uh, the, the soldiers go to the house of God. And then we see that the people the in charge of the army they go ahead and they say, because this war was such a miracle, we did not lose even one. We want to give an extra donation. And they give an extra donation to Moses. Moses asks God if it's okay to accept it. And God says yes. And then right after that, we start hearing the story 
about two and a half tribes that have a lot of flock, livestock. And they're saying that we'd like to stay in these lands here on the other side of the Jordan where we conquered because it has many fields for pastures. So we'd like to receive our portion here. And immediately Moses says, oh my God, deja vu. 40 years ago, we had the Jews saying they don't wanna go into the land of Israel and look what it cost us. And now again, we have Jews saying they don't wanna cross the Jordan River and go into the land of Israel. And immediately they tell Moses, absolutely not. Not only will we go into war, but we will be the pioneers. Moses makes a deal with them that you cannot come back to your portion of land until you can all Israel is conquered, which by the way, took seven years. The tribes took upon themselves an extra seven years by saying, not only will we not return until it's conquered, we will not return until it's settled. All the land is divided amongst the tribes. So it took seven years to conquer and seven years to, to um, <clears throat> sorry, seven years to divide. Now, interesting just to see you know, how men can get so caught up. They asked Moses, let us make tents and fields, uh, you know, for our, for our livestock. Let us make tents for our wives and kids, and then we're going to go to war. And Moses tells them, whoa, that was a priority mistake. First, you'll make tents for your wives and kids, and then you'll make the stuff that you need for your livestock. Interesting moment over here. And then... Another interesting teaching I want to share with you is that Chassidim say that these tribes were no fools. What they wanted was to be next to the Ohel. The Ohel is the place where a Rebbe is buried. They knew that Moses was not going to go into Israel. They knew that Moses was going to pass away and be buried here. And they said, we want to be next to the Ohel of Moses. And that's a Hasidic interpretation on why they chose to stay there. Okay, then it talks about how they conquered the lands and they settled the lands before they go across the Jordan River. And now in the final Torah portion, Moses goes ahead and starts accounting, listing all these stops that the Jews made. Now, just that you should know, the Jewish people did not make many, many stops you think that they traveled for 40 years. No, they didn't travel for 40 years. Most of the years they stayed in one place. There was the traveling until they got to the spies. And then there was the years that they were in the desert as the punishment. And then there was getting close to Israel. So you should just know that these entire journeys, God wasn't exhausting them. That's one interpretation of why Moses tells this to us. Another interpretation, which we're going to talk about soon, is that God, the, the Medrash Tanchuma says that it's a parable of a king whose son was sick and he had to travel with his son to the doctor. And then on the way back, when everything's okay, he starts pointing out to his son, do you remember over here, this happened, over here, that happened, over here, this happened. And the Medrash says, therefore, God tells Moses, enlist for the Jewish people, list for them all the 42 journeys that they took and where they angered me. Now, before I go further, it obviously lists the 42. 
But that's not what I want to share with you for a moment. I want to share with you for a moment some Kabbalistic stuff. 42. What is the number 42? So a lot of people that dabble with Kabbalah, they all of a sudden get all excited, excuse me, about the power of the prayer called Anna Bechoach. Anna Bechoach is a very beautiful prayer. I believe it was made by Rabbi Shua Ben Kana. And it's a Kabbalistic prayer. You won't see it when you look at the prayer. But in Kabbalah and in Hasidus, it is called the prayer of ascent, Aliyah. Why? To understand this, we need to understand a little bit of the Kabbalistic teachings on the Sfirot. So there are seven emotions, and each one of the seven is made up of seven. For example, there's love of love, there's kindness of kindness, strictness of kindness, there's compassion of kindness, right? Within kindness itself, you have all the seven. Then you have love of strict, kindness of strictness, strictness of strictness, compassion of strictness. For example, when you punish a child, is it strictness or is it kindness? You're punishing a child, as King Solomon says, you know, spare the rod and you're going to bring up an animal. So therefore, punishing is actually... The intent is kindness. You don't punish a child because you're angry at the child. You punish a child because you want your child to learn right from wrong. So therefore, it's the actual action is strictness, but the soul of the action is kindness. So it's never black and white between the emotions, the human emotions behind anything we do. It's always a compilation of emotions. Now, amongst all the emotions, we are taught as follows. The first six emotions is the light. The nature of the light is always to shine upwards and return back to its source, just like the element of fire. No matter how you hold the candle, the fire will always be jumping upwards, back to its source. The seventh, which is kingship, which is the garments of thought, speech, and action, is the vessel. It's through our kingship, it's through our thought, speech, and actions in which we manifest that our emotions should have a permanent impact on the world. For example, I hear that someone is suffering and I'm like, oy vey. Okay, that, that's wonderful that I said oy vey and that it bothers me. But that feeling of compassion is going to return back to heaven unless it embodies itself into an action. In other words, I can go ahead and think about how I can help this and how I can help this person. I can call up someone and say, listen, I know that you, you, you can do this. That person needs that. You mind helping him? And then, of course, I can also give charity. I can do something, whatever it may be. So my feelings are bottled into the physical world, making a physical permanent change only through the seventh emotion, which is malchut. Kingship, thought, speech, and action. Now that you understand that, seven times seven is 49, which is why we have the sphere to Omer. However, six times seven is 42. Ana Bakoach is made up of seven verses with six words each. That's why it's called the prayer of ascent because of the seven midot, it only has for each the first six, which is the light of that attribute, which means that it's an ascent. Only the vessel 
is what creates a descent, a permanency, an impact of the light in our netherworld. So being that anabachoach is only six words per verse, seven verses, it's the mystical number 42, and 42 is always about ascent. It's the light that's not being brought into a vessel which is ascending. And there's a purpose for that too. However, Chabad has a very interesting custom. The Rebbe brings it down in the calendar that he wrote in 1943. He was commissioned by his father-in-law to write a calendar with a teaching for every day. And one of those days he talks about that it's our custom, if you ever look into the Siddur, a Chabad Siddur specifically, most Svartic Siddurim, Kabbalistic Siddurim, you will see that the way the Anabachoach is written is one verse per line. The verse is written on the right side of the page. As you know, Hebrew goes from right to left. But then on the left side of each line, you have two words, which are the acronym of the six words. For example, the first word verse is So if you look on the left side on that line, you will see it has two words. One is Aleph Beis Gimel, Ana Bechoach Gevurot. And the next word is Yud Taf Tzadik, Yemincha Tatetzruda. So it takes the acronym of the six words to create one more saying. Hence, what Kabbalah and Chabad Hasidus is focused on that somehow, even in the prayer of ascent, we should create the seventh of each of the attributes, emanations, so that it should have a vessel, because that is our job in this world, to create vessels for the infinite light. So when we talk about 42 journeys, which is truly the journey of ascent from the nether slavery of Egypt to the great heights of royalty in Israel, we talk about 42 journeys, because that is the Kabbalistic secret of ascent. We're going to talk about that more in a moment. And then God again talks about, he spoke last week, again, and this week, we talk about how God is warning us that when we go into the land of Israel, we should not tolerate idolatry there because we're going to learn from their ways, but rather um, any of the people that wanted to stay from the other nations, they were, they were told if they're willing to have monotheism, but they could not stay if they wanted to remain with their idol worship. And then again, God tells us that we have to divide the land. We have to divide it through the logical system of how many people in each tribe will define how big that land is. Then the illogical of a lottery system. And then the prophecy through the breastplate of the high priest, Elazar. Okay. And then after that, God starts telling us the borders of the land of Israel. Okay. And then because it's a new generation, as you know, the 40 years, the older generation that left Egypt all passed away. So therefore, God is instituting here who are the new leaders of each, of each um, tribe. And they were the ones to represent the tribe when they're going to go ahead and receive the land, divide the land and receive the land. Then the next law is about the laws of city of absorption. What is the city of refuge? What is the city of refuge? The city of refuge is that if someone kills someone unintentionally, 
There was really no intention. Today, we would say a car accident. The guy was not under the influence, nothing, nothing at all. The guy was driving and whatever, the brakes snapped, whatever it may be. An unfortunate death, but there's no intentions. There was no animosity between the two. They didn't know each other, whatever it may be. So what happens? Such a person not put to death. However, he needs to remain in a city of refuge until the high priest that was alive during that time passes away. And the simple reason why we want, the, why we're saying we don't want, why we're saying the Torah is telling us until the high priest passes away, because the high priest who was the symbol of atonement and protection of the Jewish people, if anything goes wrong in the Jewish people, we're going to say that the protection, there was something missing in the protection, which is also why you're so familiar with all the stories that when you wrote into the Rebbe that something was wrong, very often the Rebbe would say, check the mezuzah, because the word, the name of God that's on the outside of the mezuzah is Shin Dalet Yud. Shin Dalet Yud is also the acronym for Shomer Dalte Yisrael. He is the protector of the doors of Israel. Hence, if there's something that doesn't belong, some type of sickness, suffering, whatever it may be, pain, that's going on in the house, we need to check the alarm system. The spiritual alarm system is the mezuzah. We need to know what, we have to check the mezuzah. And so, so too, the Kohen Gadol, so to speak, is the mezuzah of the Jewish people. And therefore, if something is going on with the Jewish people, we, the, we turn to the high priest and say, why? Why was there a breach amongst us? And not only that, but there are very deep Kabbalistic teachings that say that an accidental killing is worse than a, what's a premeditated killing. Why? I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm just saying in one aspect of, of spirituality. Because when a person does an Avera, he's very conscious that he shouldn't do this, and he feels the rage, the temptation, the, the whatever it may be, overcoming him. According to Kabbalah, if a person does an accidental sin, then he has to ask himself, how did my soul slip into this? Yeah, there's a, mil a million reasons according to nature, but how did my soul slip into a sin? And therefore, when someone does an accidental sin, according to Hasidus, he should really give a deeper look into the spirituality and the purity of his character, wondering how did this happen? If I went through temporary insanity with rage, then I know what's wrong, I know what to work on. But if there's no rage, no nothing, and that's why by Hasidim, if you eat something and later you find out it's not kosher, you take it much harder than if you went on a rage and ate something purposely not kosher. Because you may not have known it's kosher or not kosher, but your soul definitely did know. Why didn't your soul stop you from eating it? That means that, again, there's a breach in the purity and the spirituality and the sensitivity of the soul. Now, by the way, in this, in this Torah portion, talking about the, the, um, the cities of refuge, when it talks about the cities of refuge, there's a beautiful verse that says, and they said, they, just to tell you the fact, there was three on one side of the Jordan River, there was three on the other side of the Jordan River, and then it says that if, when, not if, but when, the im when God will broaden your territories, you'll add on another three. That has never happened yet. 
Maimonides uses this as one of the few places in the Torah where it hints about Mashiach. Okay. Anyway, the last thing is, once again, we should, we spoke about this last week when the daughters of Tzalafchot, which were brilliant women, came to Moses and said, what's about my father's portion in the land? My father had no sons and only the males are going to inherit. So why, why should my father not have a portion in the land? And it, uh, our sages tell us that these girls were brilliant. They told Moses, well, one second. If you're going to say, okay, someone who doesn't have children, what, what happens? He doesn't get inherited. So if you consider that my father had no children, then how come you didn't force his brother to marry our mother? The law is if a man dies without children, then the brother has to marry the wife to have a child to be named after the dead brother. So the reason you didn't do that is because my father had five daughters. So you are considering her considering us children. If you are considering us children, then we should inherit the land. And God agreed with them. God said they're right. Now in this week's Torah portion, they're being told that the rest of the tribe said, one second, these girls can marry whoever they want. And if they marry whoever they want from a different tribe, then amongst our portion in the land is going to belong to other families from different tribes. And that's not right. We want to keep our tribe together. So God accepts their, their request too. And the girls of Tzlovchad, uh, the five daughters are told, you will receive your father's land. However, to protect the inheritance of the tribe, please make sure that you marry from the very, very many men that are in the tribe. Okay. <clears throat> now, the Haftorah is a special Haftorah because we just, this past Sunday, we fasted. We fast two Sundays ago, last Sunday. We fast the 17th of Tammuz. And therefore, we're now in the three weeks from when they breached, the Babylonians breached the walls of Jerusalem until they put the Holy Temple on fire. And therefore, these three weeks, we have special Special Aftorahs, Jeremiah, last one's Isaiah, where he's warning us and telling us, do teshuvah, do teshuvah, do teshuvah, so that this won't happen. Okay, and now let's talk about what I wanted to share with you. So number one, there's a Kabbalistic teaching that the 42 journeys represents the journey from leaving Egypt until Mashiach comes. There's 42 journeys. The Baal Shem Tov takes it a step further. Every soul in every lifetime has 42 journeys. Now, please understand that there are people that were born in the village, lived in the village, had a bar mitzvah in the village, got married in the village, became a grandfather in the village, died in the village, and never left the village. So obviously, the Baal Shem Tov is not talking about just physical journeys. We're talking about spiritual journeys. Now, what does that mean that every soul has to go through 42 journeys in, in each lifetime? On top of that, again, I want to share with you based on a teaching of the Rebbe. When Rashi talks about this metaphor that I told you, quoting it from Medrash Tanchuma, he says as follows. He brings the metaphor of a king who is taking his son who was sick to a doctor. And when he goes to the doctor and then finally he feels better on the way back, he stops and he tells them, oh, do you remember here this? You remember here that? And the Medrash Tanchuma lists three things. He says, do you remember here we slept? Do you remember here we were cold? And do you remember that here your head was hurting? 
Now, if you notice, I was careful. I said here, we slept. Here, we were cold. Here, your head was hurting. Now, in the metaphor, the king is God. The prince that is sick is the Jewish people. And God telling Moses, list for them all the places in which they angered me. Go over with them what happened. Now, the Rebbe says that everything in the Torah is obviously precise. So the metaphor has to also be precise. So the metaphor has a couple of questions that we need to understand. In the metaphor, the king takes his son to a doctor. He's healed, and on the way back, the king is listening to the son, reminding him everything that happened. However, in the actual story for which we use this metaphor, it wasn't no two-way journey. There was a one-way journey. We went from Egypt to Israel. There was no going back, and then Moses is telling us, oh, you remember we were here? Oh, you remember we were here? It was a one-way trip. The 42 journeys was going from Egypt to Israel. So what is the metaphor saying? And when the king was going back with his son, after his son was healed, that's when he listed him these things. Number one. Number two, why these three specific things? Here we slept. Here we were cold. And here your head was hurting. Interesting to understand this. Now, <coughs> excuse me. In order to understand this, the Rebbe points out that from Egypt until the splitting of the sea, there were three journeys. And in those three journeys, these three things happened. In the first journey, they went from Ramses to Sukkos, and in Sukkos, they stayed overnight. So that was the first place we slept here. The second journey was when they received now the clouds of glory. The clouds of glory was job was also to give shade in the desert. Hence, on the second journey, they started experiencing not hot, but coolness. Here we were cold. In the third stop is where they were complaining about the waters, the bitter waters, and why did you take us here? We should go back to Egypt. Why did you take us out of Egypt to die here? They were having logical complaints to what was going on. Hence, here your head was hurting. However, all of this journey, it's interesting because the Medrash, after he gives the metaphor, he says, so too God told Moses, tell the Jewish people all the places in which they angered me. Well, question, out of the 42 journeys that Moses listed, not every one of them had a story where the Jews angered God. So what does that mean? And now the Rebbe gets into the deeper picture. The deeper picture is that the soul descends into this world. And when the soul descends into this world, the first thing it descends is into a place of darkness, Tzimtzum, where divinity is hidden and the potential of evil exists. And we are in a state of sleep. We're not conscious of God's presence. And then there's a second state in which the passion and temptation, the self-centered narcissism 
can be cooled. Because to have freedom of choice, we need to have two things. Number one, we need to have the potential of evil. That's the first stop. We come into the physical world where the soul feels distance and can't succumb to sin. The second stop is coldness. What does coldness represent? Being protected by the clouds of glory. We don't mean coldness in a bad way here, but we mean cooling off like a radiator cools off an engine. So too, we have the study of Torah, the revelation of that which God gives us to be able to cool off the passion, the lust, and the narcissy of the animalistic soul. And then the third thing is that God wants us to have freedom of choice. And if we can only emotionally connect to passion and lust, and we can only emotionally connect to God, we don't have true freedom of choice. Hence, we even have to have intellectual connection. And as you know, we spend our life justifying our shortcomings, the intellect, the hurting of the head. Now, what's amazing, I want to get to the amazing part, because this is a long sikha, it's just unbelievable, it's really beautiful. However, I want to get to, the, to, to, to the, the points that just stuck out for me. The Rebbe questioned, why is it all called anger? And then the Rebbe questions, why is it only about the first three journeys? What's about all the rest of the 39 journeys? And why is it called returning if they never went back? It was a one-way journey. So in short, I'm going to share with you something unbelievable. There is part of the story of our temptation and freedom of choice, which was the work of God. And that is because God contracted and concealed his divinity. And because God contracted and concealed his, 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 concealed his divinity, we are able to live in lying to ourselves. I'm not worried about lying to others yet. Lying to ourselves. And that is only because God has hit himself. He allows us to feel that we can fool God. We can compromise with God. And that process of contraction, that process of symptom. so the words that the previous Rebbe, the Rebbe quotes his father-in-law, he says that this entire notion of contraction is not what God wants. In other words, God didn't give us freedom of will that we should live in darkness. God gave us freedom of will so that when we choose correctly, we will be so much stronger, so much more enlightened, so much more pure. So the entire descent in itself is really not what God wants. It's all part of the anger, so to speak. However, the purpose of all of it is to have the ultimate closeness. The ultimate closeness will never happen to a soul when it's in the protected environment of heaven. It happens when we're in this world, we face temptation, we face what we think is choices we have to make and the sacrifices we have to make. And then when we do that, that's when we become ultimately precious and close to God. You know, when you put skin in the game, that's when you get to feel the love. You don't have love from do to those who give you. Love is created in the giving, not in the receiving. Hence, if we would only be in the receiving part 
of our relationship with God, we would not be able to love God. God puts us in a place of temptation, freedom of choice, in which we become the givers to God by choosing right over wrong, freely choosing right over wrong. Now, what happens after the splitting of the sea? So our sages tell us that were the Jews not to have sinned with the golden calf, were they not to have done what was wrong, there would have been no more journeys. It would have been straight from the splitting of the sea into Israel. That means that all the other journeys was not part of the original descent that God made possible, but rather it's us actualizing the freedom of choice that God gave us in a negative descent. And now the question says, one second, if you want to tell me that God created a descent for the purpose of ascent, and therefore you should know that even the descent itself is ultimately part of an ascent. It's like crouching down before the jump. The crouching down is all part of the building up the energy to have a higher jump. That makes sense. But if you're telling me that most of these journeys of descent was because of my freedom of choice and I chose sin, then how can I say that this is all God of God's, God's plan of the ascent? This is my choosing. This is my sinning. Hence, the depth of the teaching is that God, look at the metaphor. God is going with his son. Not only in the place where God allowed for freedom of choice, but even in the actualization of a son's evil choice, ill choice, the father is still there with him. And the verse says, it's an unbelievable verse that says, God plots upon man. God plotted for Adam to eat from the tree of knowledge because the original plan was that there should be death until Mashiach comes. And therefore, God plotted and drove the snake to drive Adam to eat so that he would be punished and mankind would go through death. So the verse says, God, you plotted against mankind. It wasn't just freedom of choice. You plotted for every sin. My friends, pre-sin, we have freedom of choice. Post-sin, we need to know that God ordained for me to do this sin. And the question is, why? Why would God ordain for me to do a sin? And the answer was taught to us by King Solomon. The true light is the one that's produced in the place of darkness. When we sin and we're in a place of darkness, and in that place of detachment, of darkness, of shame, of guilt, we realize that we are a piece of God. We are pure and we can come back home. That is the ultimate light that can be produced. The light of light isn't the greatest light. The light that's produced from darkness, the love that comes to God because we sin, because we're crushed and therefore we come back like a storming, raging wave. We're coming back home. That is the ultimate light. And hence, we're being taught here that every single one of these four two journeys is a two-way journey. There's the descent, but then on the very same journey, we transform every descent into an ascent. 
And hence, it's when we turn the descent to an ascent, God tells us, now you understand why I pushed you to do this, to do what was wrong. Now you understand why I tripped you here. Now you understand why I put you in a place that you angered me. It's because I trust you, my son. I trust you, my daughter. I knew by pushing you away, not only will you come back, but you'll bring everything there back with you to me. Hence, the ultimate life is that we go through so many descents so that then later we can take those very descents and turn them around and use them for the love of God. Hence, the verse says that when Mashiach comes, we're going to say, Thank you, God, that you put me in that compromising position and you got mad at me. And look what happened. You know, you read these stories, real biographies, I'm not talking about metaphors, real biographies, where a person was fired and because they were fired and they would like hit rock bottom and they couldn't get a job. So they went and they started their own little thing only to become the most successful person, very wealthy, very powerful, helping other people. And you ask that, poem, that person, what was the greatest gift you've ever received? And he'll tell you, the greatest gift I received was when I was fired from my job, because if not, I would have still been in that job. And so we tell God, thank you, God, for, for pushing us out, for not allowing us to stay in cruise control. Thank you for letting us know that we're going to have 42 descents because 42 is all about ascent. And the ultimate ascent is to go through the descents and to transform each and every one of them, bringing them all home to Jericho, bringing them all home to being part of living a Jewish life on a Jewish land. People, thank you.